Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. Today's episode was originally recorded on Clubhouse in late 2021, and it's still really relevant for builders. In this episode, Julie Yu, general partner, and Jay Rugani, investment partner at A16Z Bio and Health, talked to Kate Ryder of Maven, Bill Porter of Butterfly Network, and Amanda Reese of Bold. Together, they discussed the go-to-market motion of B to C to B, which we also describe at length in the third chapter of our go-to-market playbook series. That's available at a16z.com slash digital hyphen health hyphen builders, or at the link in the show notes. We'll be putting out the final chapter of that series soon, so stay tuned. In the meantime, let's get started. as I think we'd all agree, distribution is one of the key drivers of either failure or success in digital health companies. Um, And it's historically been a very steep climb, a steep hill to climb with a very limited set of options and a fairly immature market um, that had, you know, a relatively low set of um, adoption motions for for tech-enabled solutions. However, uh, we are definitely seeing a revolution in how digital health companies are going to market. Uh, the first of which is um, this concept of B2C2B. And um, we are actually joined by a group of amazing digital health builders here who have actually implemented uh, different versions of this motion in real life. So why don't we start by actually going around the room and um, having you all introduce yourselves, say what your company does, and, um, and state in your version of B2C2B, who is your C and who is your B? We'll start with you, Kate. Great. Well, thanks. Um, I'm really excited to be here at Maven. We are the largest virtual clinic for women and families. We um, have uh, fertility, maternity, pediatric, you know, family building programs um, that we sell to both employers and payers. Um, we also, though, have a, a, a C motion. We, we also sell to individuals. You can just download Maven from the App Store at any point, and um, you know, just have a, a quick um, video chat with or, or message with a, one of our thirty different types of providers um, uh, across three hundred fifty subspecialties in, in women's and family health. So our our B two B motion, I would say, um, it, our, our B is is very much the the, the employer or the payer. Um, you know, the, the health plan, um, and then RC, you know, is, is definitely the patient, but also the provider. So we work with a lot of different types of providers. Um, so anyways, having all of these stakeholders, I think makes for a more of a complicated product roadmap to make sure that we're, we're pleasing everyone, but that is, I think healthcare in general is a very complicated industry. So, um, kind of mirrors that. But anyways, really thrilled to be here and, uh, thank you so much, Julie, for having us. Awesome, Kate. Thank you. Um, Bill, why don't we have you go next? So I'm Bill Porter. I lead the international business at a company called Butterfly Network. And Butterfly is actually a hybrid med device, AI, SaaS company. But at the core, we've built the world's most affordable, portable, and versatile ultrasound. And so really what we envision it to be is the stethoscope of the future. And so it enables a, a body a window into the body for clinicians uh, to make better decisions early on in the care process. And so for us, the the C are really clinicians, right? So anyone today who may have a, a stethoscope around their neck, so physicians, nurses, PAs, et cetera, who are buying this out of their own pocket through our e-commerce experience online. And then 
the B who becomes larger enterprise buyers are really health systems, the government, military, and then large physician practices and medical schools and nursing schools as well. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. And then last but not least, Amanda. Awesome. Thanks, Julie. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Amanda Reese. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Bold. Bold is a digital health platform that improves how people age through science-based exercise programs. And today we're focusing on preventing the most common reasons that older adults end up um, in the emergency department and hospitalized. And so we're specifically focused on fall prevention and arthritis management. RC is anyone who cares about aging well, but typically that's older adults, 65 plus, and RB are Medicare Advantage plans and at-risk entities who um, really want to keep this cohort as healthy and active as possible. Excellent. So we have a great mix here of different C's and different B's. And um, I think that'll play out in the form of um, different variations on this theme of, of B to C to B. And just for additional framing on what B to C to B actually means, um, this concept of bottoms up sales or uh, sometimes called product led growth is uh, a motion that's been popularized by many of the enterprise SaaS companies. So things like Slack, Zoom, Dropbox, um, products where an individual user can, you know, basically get some utility out of a self-service product without a huge enterprise integration and um, can be sold at a price point that is either free or low cost enough for the individual to actually pay out of pockets for that initial product set. Um, and then once the company has a critical mass of users uh, who are acquired via that fashion, they can then flip that into a sale to some sort of enterprise. So you heard you know, a version of this, let's say, with um, with Bold, where, you know, Bold might acquire seniors um, directly through their platform once they get it to a critical mass of um, of members uh, who uh, actually are in, in co- contract with, with a certain Medicare Advantage plan. They can then go to that plan and say, hey, we have X number of, of members who um, of your plan that are already on our platform. Would you like to make this a covered benefit uh, for those members? As you'll hear from these founders, it was a very deliberate decision on their part to execute this, this B2C2B motion. They could have actually gone the more traditional route of B2B2C, which would be selling to an enterprise to then earn the right to get access to these end users uh, through by way of that enterprise contract. Um, would love to hear uh, from each one of you, how why did you choose to go B2C2B? Was it kind of the obvious first choice for you all? Or um, did you decide uh, to, to compromise and, and go in this direction because you had tried other things? Um, would love to hear some of the war stories from the early days. So, Kate, let's start with with Maven and, and kind of the origin story of of your B two C to B. Well, we launched the product in 2015, and um, it was not a time where many people even knew what telemedicine was. Um, you know, selling anything in and around women's and family health, fertility, or maternity benefits that also was a new category. So we we didn't have an obvious category to sell into. We had to educate the the main buyers not only on kind of virtual care as a a new care model, but we also had to educate them on the fact that, you know, a nine-month pregnancy product, it it was just not um, enough for all of the family, all of the families and all of the the, the women and, um, and, and couples who are, who are trying to conceive and, and start families. So we thought, okay, we, we know though that there's so much need and we needed to also show um, momentum to investors as we continued to raise every, every round in those early days. So there are two reasons. One is, you know, how do we just get users on the platform to prove out our thesis that 
these populations are so underserved that, that virtual a virtual care model will help solve some of these gaps. They will like the product. They will use it. And then we had to prove out, you know, that our, our core buyers would actually would actually buy. Um, and then I think the other thing that that is just really critical right now is as um, digital health has really kind of um, exploded with with COVID is being B to C to B. You you just know that you have a competitive advantage in the market as you know a lot of copycats coming into the industry later. You actually have a product and product metrics um, that that users love. For us, there's a lot of clinical ROI in our business model. Um, you know, maternity is one of the top costs, and so you can't drive outcomes if you actually just don't have engagement on a product that patients love. So it was kind of twofold, like to get to harness momentum to show investors that our model was right in the really early days of our category, as well as just constantly challenge our product teams and challenge ourselves to have a a product that users love first and foremost, and that will serve us well over the long term. Kate, I think what you said around um, the need for engagement to drive the clinical outcomes and actually thinking about engagement and clinical ROI together is um, spot on and totally the way that we approached it as well. For us, B2C to B also came down to access. So we knew that you know enterprise sales in healthcare can take a long time. And initially it was, hey, let's not gate getting our product live and getting it to individuals who might be able to pay out of pocket. Um, so let's put this into the world quickly. Let's try and build, you know, learn what is engaging to individuals, improve, and really use that as a sandbox to get big and grow quickly. And then the second way access came in when we think about the B2B sales opportunity is not everyone who wants to use our product or would benefit from our product is able to pay, um, particularly because we're serving older adults and you know fixed income or limited income older adults, um, it can be challenging. And so we also thought around the necessary, like for our business model to sell B2B is to get access and coverage to those individuals who we were really trying to help become healthier. But while doing that initial B2C motion, our second hire at Bold was a clinical researcher. And so we started telling that story almost in parallel with going live to the individual customer. And I think that served us well when we then started to do the B2B sales. Awesome. We're going to double click on that concept, man, and we'll come back to sort of how did you guys leverage this into kind of the enterprise pitch? But before we do that build, um, could you tell your version of the story from a from a butterfly lens? Yeah, sure. And, and full disclosure, as Julie was alluding to, I was not a founder. I joined about six months into the commercialization. But for Butterfly, it was really all part of the disruptive product. So Butterfly is a fraction of the cost of traditional ultrasound devices. And so when you have a device that's at that cost structure, you have to be really thoughtful about how you commercialize it. You cannot have hundreds of salespeople like the incumbents did or still do. And so it was about speed to market and access, as others have alluded to, the simplicity of it. I mean, if we had to go contract with with large health systems early on with our use of the cloud and AI, we would have died on the vine. It just wasn't in the cards. And then it was also with this, this lens and the inspiration of the consumerization of the enterprise, if we could get this in the hands of individuals, it would eventually find its way into the large, you know, kind of traditional um, health systems out there. It's kind of the only model that we could, that we could take back then to, uh, to support the business. And so um, in some ways it was constraint driving innovation. Super fascinating. Um, Let's actually um, pull the thread uh, on, on Amanda, what you said about 
um, you know, from day one, not only were you thinking about going direct to users, but also developing that clinical narrative that you wanted to eventually take to the payers. Um, can you just talk through that and, and any other examples of how, how did your enterprise customers respond to the initial consumer acquisition engagement data that you generated in those early days? Uh, and then, you know, how did you then specifically use that in your, in your sales motion and your pitch um, to the enterprises? Cool. Um, so I'm, I am going to shout out Hari, my co-founder and partner, in helping us think about working backwards and the importance of clinical ROI, because um, while, while we launched direct-to-consumer, we also found our clinical advisor at Stanford, brought on a clinical researcher and said, you know, we should be taking what we think is the best version of our product that we can do validation on because it will take months to do this validation anyways and we can't if we do these things in sequence it will take too long and you know you might run out of runway and like we don't really have time for that so um i think that while initially i would say even some investors were like oh like this feels like you're doing a lot all at once i think it was necessary when you can bring those two threads together it did unlock um, our enterprise sales in the enterprise conversation i think there's Two things. If you if you lead with just the research, people will always ask, "What's the cohort size?" You know, and if your cohort size is twenty or fifty or hundred, they're like, "That's nice," but like, how are you going to reach thousands of people? And so, if you can actually have a story that's two parts, it's we both know how to go out and get thousands or tens of thousands of members without any help from you. Like we control our own destiny in that way, and we know that what we're delivering can prove results because we've thought about doing this in a really rigorous way. And I think that that's um, kind of what we bring together when we're, we're pitching our enterprise customers. Amazing. So it sounds like clinical was kind of the main center of gravity for how you thought about um, kind of the evidence generation to make the case to the enterprise. Kate, you mentioned cost savings as a big part of cost impact as a big part of, of your solution. Is that is that mainly what you indexed on? Or yeah, I think it's um, it was both cost savings around maternity, which kind of comes in the form of reducing C section rates, reducing NICU spend, reducing ED visits. But then on the clinical side, there's also things like increased rates of breastfeeding, um, increased rates of mental health utilization, particularly for people who have perinatal mental health issues. Um, and to, you know, in, increased or, or measuring some of our fertility clinic partners, um, decreased rates of multiples. So um, all of that was 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 really important um, as we were kind of, you know, honing this model. But I think the other component um, in the early days, uh, we know that there is a direct line to clinical ROI and financial ROI. The more someone actually engages with the people on our platform, the care advocates or the telehealth, and so we actually had um, a challenge where we didn't have like in the early days of enterprise. You know, your early customers are, are are not like the Fortune 50 employers or the big health plans; they're the smaller employers, and so we just needed um, a volume of consumers to actually be constantly seeing our providers um, and constantly using our product, and so we were able over time, one of the big things that we measure internally is the shift from how many of our members using Maven come from our B2B clients, so their members, you know, they work at the companies or they're members of the payer health plans that we work with versus um, how many are our consumers who are just downloading the app. And so over time, you know, now the vast majority comes from our B2B to C uh, channels, but in the early days, it was very much still the vast majority of our, our, our usage, particularly on the virtual side, virtual telemedicine came from um, our consumers and it shifted about a few years ago. Got it. Okay. 
Um, Bill, what about you? You have obviously a different flavor of users here. Was it just the fact that so many clinicians were using the product that convinced the enterprise or what were the other nuances to, to the messaging um, that you brought to the enterprise after you had the initial user? Yeah. So it was multifold. And one of them was just the awareness driven by, you know, having clinicians using this and happy with it. And I think as most people probably know on this call, half of all physicians in the U.S. are employed by these hospital systems. And so inevitably it's going to find their way in. But the other interesting thing that happened, there was an organization, kind of a safety and quality organization that had published their top 10 risks. I guess it was for 2020. Maybe it was 2019. It was a couple of years back. One of them was kind of the ungoverned proliferation of point-of-care ultrasound, which is, what our, which is what our device is. And so we actually were building the integration and the governance elements to our software. And so we both created and exacerbated the problem, but then also brought in software and enterprise solutions to fix it. You had, you know, the IT organizations and and potentially radiology departments, et cetera, looking to get control over ultrasound. And so we both, again, caused it, but then had the solution. Um, and so that was how it evolved for us. A nice judo move on your part. So both of you, or all of you have sort of mentioned um, how your uh, distribution models evolved over time, you know, from a B2C to B motion, and then, you know, perhaps over time, maybe more of your users were coming from from the B side. But, um, you know, one of the, the criticisms that we sometimes hear about B2C to B is that, you know, if all digital health companies are doing this, will it just drive up customer acquisition costs or CAC? Um, because of heightened competition for these end users. What is your all's take on that? Sure, yeah. Um, first of all, in the early days, um, definitely. I mean, we, there was just like no one um, advertising in our space. So we had a, a, a message that was resonant, that was unique. I think though, thinking about it, like this is just a product philosophy. I mean, it's product-led growth, right? And so what's underpinning this is you have to have a beloved product and the and your patients and consumers, they have to love it because that's the only way to unlock value across all of your other ecosystem partners. So I think we would just, you know, the, the story would have been different, but we, we still would have launched this way because you're showing, like you're putting your money where your mouth is. You're saying we are ultimately for the patient or for the member or for the woman or for the family. And so um, when we look at our space as well, um, it, you know, competitors would just launch, um, you know, to employers first without really kind of cutting their teeth with the, with the actual consumers. And we know their engagement levels because we're replacing them at some employers and payers. And it's just, they just don't have the engagement. Yeah, I think there's some similarities to Kate. Um, for us, I think the timing was interestingly linked to the pandemic and also highlighted maybe some ageist thoughts that were held by mm-hmm. folks. Um, you know, 10 years ago, I would say that the digital divide for older adults was probably higher than it is now. Like we know that this divide is closing. It is still higher amongst older adults than not. And so we had a lot of conversations around like head scratching and disbelief that we could do acquisition digitally, but that is how we scale. And I think that's like the bet that a lot of our partners are making is that like they want something that can scale and reach uh, rural populations that have internet but don't have clinics or wellness centers nearby that they could direct their members to. They want um, to know that a less mobile older adult with multiple chronic conditions can access something. And I think we we always believe in like product growth, like you said, Kate, but I, I really just think human-centered design. And so in some cases, and I heard this a lot at HLTH in the last couple of days, but 
like this emphasis on really meeting a, an individual, a member, a patient with what matters most to them. And so I think the way that we prove that and we would always want to is first doing that B2C and then taking the story and saying, here's the impact that we're having. Here's the value that we're delivering. Don't you want them to know that you would cover this and you would have their back? And I think for us in particular, just the timing of, of our launch two months before the pandemic began, um, it was something that was really top of mind because traditionally there's been very low engagement in these fitness. And that doesn't mean that um, fitness and exercise programs aren't something that people are seeking. It's that they hadn't been configured or delivered in a way that actually met those individuals where they were. And so I think the the fresh approach, and honestly, it was kind of bold to start all digital first, but um, I think that's definitely proven that we can grow uh, at a lot faster rate than if we hadn't. Bill, did you, I mean, I'm curious, it sounds like a lot of the initial engagement from clinicians was actually quite viral. And, and I, you know, I'm curious, did you end up spending a lot of, of money on the initial acquisition? How has that changed over time? Um, you guys are obviously a publicly traded company, so I'm sure some of this data is out there, but, you know, have you found it um, to, to become more expensive over time to acquire the same set of users as, as the market has matured? So I guess a couple points in to, to what the others have said. I think product-led growth is we're making it sound easy. It's really hard to, to do that. And so few companies do. Uh, you know, when Butterfly commercialized, we had probably 200 engineers and two salespeople, which is, you know, completely backwards of how most companies would do it. And it, and it worked out. Um, so getting that right and really creating value for the end user, like that is not easy. And so to the question about acquisition costs, I don't think it'll ever be a problem for the companies that really do it well, even it gets, if it gets more crowded, because at the end of the day, the the thing that matters is the lifetime value. So if you're if you're retaining those customers and then there's some sort of viral play, whether it's into the enterprise or you know, whatever it may be in your case, you, you can make the CAC make sense. For us, what's interesting, because we're we're med device, so there's a touch and feel element to what we do. It's not software which can be experienced on your own. We we leveraged conferences and trade shows quite a bit. And even before we had FDA clearance, we were generating a lot of hype and interest around what we were doing and capturing reservations for when the device would eventually uh, come about. And so today, people aren't going to conferences the same way they used to be. So we'd have to do it differently. And and so you, if that's an important part of the strategy, which it is for us, you have to think about roadshows and doing this on your own versus the traditional conferences. So we have had to adapt cost structures. I don't think it's changed dramatically through time. When you start to get into the enterprise, the numbers become much larger. So your per unit costs don't really change too much. Bill, actually on that point, I want to want to ask a question. You and I have spoken in the past about to an enterprise, you're ultimately trying to do one of three things. You're either trying to um, drive some increase in value to them in the form of increased clinical benefit or increased revenue. Number two, you're trying to reduce wasteful spend, cut costs, or you're trying to, number three, minimize risk. Can you just expand on that on that point? And then I'd love to bring in Kate and Amanda to talk about um, how they thought about their value proposition uh, in that framework. So, you know, enterprises are, are complex beasts in, ter- in terms of how they buy. But as, as Jay said, I mean, your value prop has to fall into one, two, or three of those things, and ideally all, right? And you can have a story around all of them. We talked about clinical ROI. It's critical. And something I believe deeply is 
it's really about storytelling first and foremost. People, you know, organizations, even though they're enterprises, they're people within them and people buy with their hearts and rationalize with their brain. And so you need you need the ROI, but it really it's about stories and each of those three elements. Um, and again, if you can do all three, that's the that's the sweet spot. But even if you greatly improve clinical outcomes and you can just explain to an enterprise that they can break even, perhaps drive 10% ROI, that's oftentimes enough. I think a lot of early founders, commercial folks, and I've made this mistake, think that you need to have 300% ROI. The reality is you actually discredit your product if you're selling it at a 300% ROI is my experience. And so, and these organizations do not make 300% investments often. That, that's really interesting um, and, and helpful to hear from your perspective. Maybe to go to Kate first, as you thought about being beloved by your consumers in the early days in the B2C portion, and then um, later thinking about the enterprise, do you agree with that framework? Is there a different way you thought about it at Maven? Sure. So I think it goes back to what Amanda said earlier, which is about cohort size when you're working with the big um, buyers of our services. And so for us, of course, to run um, an RCT and, and whatnot, you need to have an enormous sample size and you have gone through the Maven programs and, and whatnot. That takes a long time. Um, so what we're able to do in, in this scenario is that we were able to just show incremental improvement through large cohorts on how they're using the product, how things look in the first trimester, how things look in the second trimester, what IVF, um, you know, in a six-month basis looks like. And so it just it really helped us um, tell our story as to the why of our care model so that by the time we were ready and had enough data from our enterprise members to actually do claims-based studies to prove out our, our clinical and financial ROI, we were, we were ready to do that. But like, you know, we just did, we, we didn't have that in the early days because it took some time to build. And so a lot of the consumer data we had through the app, we were able to um, talk about engagement and, and, and extrapolate using, using some of that data. Amanda, do you agree with that? Yeah, um, I really like what Bill said around just the the part of the story. And I'll, I'll just share one thing that we found and had to really hone and craft our story was around costs. Because just looking at the data in most cases, it's very apparent that falls and fall-related injuries are a top five cost for Medicare and Medicaid. We spend as much on falls as we do on cancer care. And what I realized was most plans are overpaying for falls and they don't even realize it. And so how could we actually tell that story in a way that helps them improve and, and sort of better understand their data or their members? And I think that two way of both um, sort of very, very measured, showing, showing the data, showing the numbers, but hel helping them rethink about how they're slicing that data. So your individuals with COPD, with diabetes, with hypertension, they are all at elevated fall risk and they're all falling. But if you're not breaking out those fall costs, you're just going to see that as adding to the cost for individuals with those other chronic conditions. And so for us, there's, there was definitely an initial discussion and, you know, it varies person to person, organization to organization. But if you couldn't find, if they didn't know those fall numbers already, like the first place to start is just aligning around the, like, what is the cost, right? Because before we start telling you how awesome our product is and how much people love it, I think like really um, focusing on, on the dollars and the value that we could deliver. And then 
I also think what Bill said around the ROI, I think that's actually the hot take here is that, you know, a paying for yourself is a good good place to be. But um, I, I think to just sort of tie what Kate said and what Bill said together, if you know your product works and you have the data to back it up, you actually have way more leverage in these negotiations to say, like, we know we can pay for ourselves, right? Like, we've seen it. And you're not kind of, it's not a bluff that's a, we've seen it, we know. Um, and then you can, all the pricing and, and the details that might come through contracting can, can really adjust to reflect that. But I do think it gives you power in those discussions to have all the pieces that we've talked about earlier. Um, yeah, I think one of the themes, in addition to the obvious sort of, we can show ROI using actual hard data versus you know conjecture. Um, I think the other theme that we're hearing here is telling the customer that you know more about their users and their employees than they do. Uh, it's also you know a super powerful part of, of how this this message, messaging strategy can work. Um, so one thing that that Kate, I think you mentioned early on was how your B to C to B strategy intersected with your your fundraising strategy. I'm curious, you know, what were your first round of investor conversations like? Did it help or not help um, your fundraising process to have this approach, which at the time uh, I imagine was was relatively novel in the grand scheme of things? And um, and then did your choice of the B to C to B motion influence the actual set of investors that you targeted? Um, and then how did that maybe change with with each stage? Sure. And you know, I was talking to one of my friends in digital health, who uh, TJ um, Parker from PillPack, who um, ended up selling PillPack to Amazon. One of the early great success stories in in digital health. And and one of the things we talked about a lot is that. So few investors understood digital health at the time. Um, so not only were we walking into meetings and we're like, hey, you know, this is our product. Um, this is how the women's health industry works. This is how telemedicine works. This, it was just like too much education. And in his, in his category was the PBMs. This is how the pharma, you know, pharmaceutical industry works. This is how, you know, mail order um, prescriptions and, and whatnot, which is what, what they were doing. There was a lot of kind of regulatory build out, which meant that our growth in the early days was never going to be as explosive as a clubhouse type growth, but you had to show some momentum. And so I think in our early days, we actually didn't really raise from healthcare investors. And it was just about, you know, could we hit 20% growth month over month on our virtual visits? So we're, we're basically, we were proving out the telemedicine story and the fact that people would use telemedicine. Again, it was still really new user behavior. Um, and so we, we use that to say in our early pitch decks, hey, look, this is a new behavior trend. We're early. We're the first verticalized telemedicine network in women's and family health. This is the core customer of healthcare. You know, the, the larger opportunity here is B2B. And we are, you know, we had our, our you know, our family benefits and maternity benefit product on our slides back in 2014 and 2015. So it was always kind of there, but no one ever really asked questions about it. Everyone just asked questions around value prop to customer, and then they needed to see that momentum. And so that, that was kind of what we found. And it was not until our Series A where we eventually found um, you know, our, our investor, Lauren Bruggen, who let her, A, she was pregnant with her third child and, um, and understood our value prop and saw that we had some really early but very small consumer momentum, but then really invested on the promise of the category, the pipeline that we had generated from, the, you know, from employers in, in you know, 2016, 2017. And so that was really what, what helped us crack that. But, you know, until 2017, until we had that pipeline, it was really all about that early consumer momentum. Um, Amanda, we know how your investor conversations ended up, but what about you? When you thought about your, your, um, the planning of that process, um, how did your, your B2C to B motion 
uh, factor into that? And then also, um, how did it resonate? Oh my gosh. Well, um, <laughs> yes, we know how it ended and could not have been more fortuitous to, to meet when we did, Julie. But, um, I'm also just loving taking notes from from Kate's experience, having gone through more rounds of fundraising and also doing it at a time when I imagine you, Kate, probably had way more of these conversations. I, I would say had, I can't even count how many conversations around explaining Medicare Advantage and value-based care because there's a lot, like, because the consumer opportunity around engaging um, adults over 65 also feels huge and is like a very separate thing, there was there was always like a back and forth of either explaining why there was a, a enterprise opportunity and a lot of people nudging and pushing to say, no, 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 just like, just focus on the consumer. And I was like, well, I think there's like a real benefit to, to taking this sort of next level approach and saying, we want to do the validation, we want, we want to align both for our business growth and also to, again, create access to the members. But, um, I honestly felt like there was fatigue. It would be like two meetings just going into the why this was our, our vision, what what Medicare Advantage was, and then coming back to wait, okay, so what do you do again? Um, I think you just learn. It helps you have that baseline to know when you meet the right person who has the appropriate context and expertise and actually can be a partner, you can move a lot faster. And that's where we ended up. Awesome. Bill, I know you mentioned you're not, you weren't one of the founders, but since Butterfly you know, has been a great success story um, and it was now a publicly traded entity, to what degree would you say kind of these early stories of, of the go-to-market um, became, you know, at all a core pillar of, of the way that the market valued you guys or viewed you guys as different and unique? Um, or if it, you know, at the end of the day, once you were at scale, it, it didn't really matter. Sure. So we certainly certainly raised money before commercializing, right? And so I mentioned driving demand and reservations well in advance of um, of that process. And so, uh, again, I wasn't part of it, but I am certain that the tens of thousands of clinicians who raised their hand and said they wanted this device before it was available helped drive confidence um, in the process. In terms of the evolution you know, at the, at the point where we were going public, we were just really starting that enterprise upmarket shift. But there was data points around the increased lifetime value of the enterprise customer, right? Higher SaaS revenue, of course, lower churn to be expected there. That was a valuable element to the next act, so to speak, of where the business was headed, right? As it was transforming from more of a consumer, direct-to-physician business to an enterprise business, and how those two feed together. So it was really, the enterprise story was attractive and different because most med device companies do not have a large software business um, and they tend to not be good at it. So I think it was a differentiator from that standpoint and still is. Very cool. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email BioEatsWorld at A16Z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures.